Alrighty, guys. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 13. Of course, we'll have it up on the wall or if you have a favorite app. This text this morning is a part of this bigger picture of Jesus' what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And this really this picture of how he's leading his people and what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God in this world. Or as he will use the phrase, and Matthew uses it for Jesus in, in this gospel, the kingdom of heaven, which is really, I don't think, just another way of saying the kingdom of God, although there's overlap there. But to use a fancy word, it's like a cosmological term where it's saying the realm of God is now invading the, the, this realm and making things back to how they were supposed to be. And so the, king, the people of the kingdom and the kingdom of God, and we as an outpost of that, Jesus is saying this is how we are to think and how to live and to love one another differently. And this passage this morning is, is a big one, right at the key of it. So I want to I say this. I will probably say some things today that might irritate you. Hopefully not, but that's part of it sometimes. But I'm not going to answer all your questions about this text. And I hope you know that we want to create a culture in our church where it's not like I stand up here and it's like give the last word on something. My goodness, I, I want to do my best to preach in accordance with the truth of God's scripture. But I want to always say like the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 17 that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they went and examined the scriptures to see if the things Paul said were true. And that text will even make more sense when we get into our text today. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We say as Jesus prayed for us that we would remember your word is truth and you would set us apart by that truth. We confess that we are humbly coming to that truth as people in need of your spirit, in need of the community of your spirit, to discern and to live out the way of the kingdom. We ask for help right now with that, God. We pray that you would address our defenses our self-protective strategies and self-redemptive strategies, trusting that you are truth and you have come to set us free. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently, if you were to look in our backyard, you would see that we've constructed an outbuilding. I am not a contractor or construction person at all, so my brother and dad have mainly did that. And as obvious as this may seem, you could probably guess, one of the tools that we used in doing this building is one of the most basic tools and yet one of the most wonderful tools in the world. I won't make you say it out loud. We used to talk back and forth and hear more, but I won't make you do it this morning, is, is a hammer. I mean, a hammer is a wonderful tool. It's a wonderful invention. 
But I read this last week, and I know our kids are in here, so I'm not trying to, to scare anybody, so I'll leave out some of the details. On March 19th, just last week, a man was arrested for beating his girlfriend's son to death with a hammer. True story. He said he just lost it. The reason I'm bringing this up is a hammer is a very beautiful, practical, intentional tool with a purpose that can be fulfilled to do wonderful things. Wonderful things both practically, providing someone with shelter, not just for their lawnmowers, but for their families. It can be used in beautiful displays of art and beauty, and yet it can be taken and it can be used to kill people. To torture people. You can Google that if you want to. I wouldn't suggest it. And what Jesus, I believe, is doing when He is talking in our text today, but also we're going to see in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is He is going to say that God's Word and all these Gospels is very much like that. It can be used and was intended to be used for beautiful things both practical and beautiful in this world, and yet it can be taken to just beat people down and kill them. I mean, Jesus is going to say to the Pharisees in the way that they use God's Word is you take these truths of God and you put burdens on people's back that you yourself don't even lift a finger to help them carry. Any study of the history of Christianity can show us that this book has been used to justify some very evil things. To hurt people personally, wars have been started. People have been devastated. And this is the reality of the world that Jesus enters. The religious establishment of his day claims to have a very high view of the Word of God, and yet they are a people who have hardened hearts, who are breaking the broken, burdening the burnt out. And the same thing can happen today. Confusion comes, pain comes. Hypocrisy abounds. And so we as the new covenant kingdom community following Jesus as King have got to be discipled by Him how to both love God and love others through the Scriptures. As I said earlier, we will but scratch the surface today and maybe all I'm going to do is raise questions for you. But we're going to see how this really is the context of what's going on. So the first thing, so how do we learn to love God and love others as the kingdom of God through the scriptures? The first thing we have to see that I think Jesus says very clearly, again, we can get coffee later. It's not by, we're going to do two knots and one what? The first knot is it's not by removing the authority of the scriptures. Notice verse 17. Wrong page. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now we've got to talk about, why would people be thinking that? 
Jesus is speaking here to what he is assuming is a common assumption going on about him. And if you think about it for a second, it would make sense. Jesus is living his life with this intense mercy ministry of mercy. Right? We've got to think, Jesus is not a Pharisee. Anything but that. He set himself up as the alternative to the people who are the word people. So you might think, oh, if they're the word people, then Jesus must not be the word person. He's touching lepers. Wait a minute. God's law says not to do that. He will come in contact with the dead. Wait a minute. God's law says not to do that. He will later in this very book tell us why our church is named what it is. He will have table fellowship with people who are to be treated as outsiders to the people of God traditionally. So you can see why Jesus has to speak to an assumption that would make sense why it's going around. This guy does not look like he respects the law and the prophets. This guy actually looks like maybe he is against the law and the prophets. Maybe what Jesus is doing is starting a revolution to abolish the law and the prophets. And Jesus says here, again, we can get coffee on whether you think Matthew's putting this in Jesus' mouth to deal with his audience. But to suspend that thought for a second, Jesus says, don't think that. Don't see me do out here doing what I'm doing, touching lepers, healing the sick, raising the dead, having table fellowship with Gentiles, speaking to a Samaritan woman by a well, Whatever you do, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Whatever I'm going to do, I believe Jesus is saying, to transform that, to make the way that we apply that in certain ways different, I'm not coming to abolish them. It's also important here that we underline that Jesus says the law and the prophets. Sometimes we skip over this, and if you were to do any study, this law and the prophets is a shorthand way for saying the whole Old Testament canon. That is, all of the Old Testament scriptures. So when Jesus is saying here that I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's not just wanting you to think about the ceremonial or civil laws in Israel, although we'll get to that in a minute. He's wanting you to think of Genesis to the end of the narrative in 2 Kings. He's wanting you to think of the whole story. It's very important that we see this. This kind of ups the ante. And this is what Jesus is going to do all through this Sermon on the Mount. Is He's going to take commands and we're going to think, right? Oh, Jesus is coming to relax this. He's going to speak to that in verse 19. But actually what He's doing is raising the standard to get to the level of the heart. So when Jesus is saying, I'm coming to fill the law and the prophets, we got to think the whole story of God including the law, including the prophecies, but also including the histories. It was all pointing forward to Him. So He says, I am coming to fulfill this. And when we think about defining this word fulfillment, we've got to think about how Matthew's used it. And not all of you have been here with us so far through this book, but this is not the first time Jesus has talked about the fulfillment of the Scriptures, of the law and the prophets, of the story of Israel. We've seen from the very beginning, Jesus comes as the son of Abraham and the son of David. It's a big way he's going to fulfill is all the promises that were given to Abraham 
about having a son and having a family, Jesus is going to say, that was all about me. The son of David, all the promises and prophecies that there would be a king whose reign would know no end. Guess what? Jesus is saying, that was all pointing to me. We've seen that he quotes Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son. So when we think about the fulfillment that Jesus is doing here, we're seeing that Jesus is accomplishing all that the Old Testament pointed towards, all of its purposes. It had a telos. It had an end. It had a goal in mind. And Jesus, when he's saying, I'm coming to fulfill this, he's saying, I'm coming to accomplish all that that history, all that those laws, all that those regulations, all that stuff about tabernacle and temple and kingdom. I'm coming to show you the point of all that. And he does this, first of all, just simply here by saying, all that then matters. Like, whatever Jesus is doing, he's not saying, okay, now Jesus is here. I don't care about Genesis and Leviticus anymore. In this text, in this very book, Jesus will speak about, he will be calling out again the the Pharisees, but he will reference all that took place from the blood of Abel to Zechariah. And if you know about these, these two stories in the Bible, one takes place in Genesis, the other takes place at the end of the Old Testament narrative. Jesus is, in his way, he's affirming, he's saying, this is, all of this, this is what points to me. So how does he fulfill this? He fulfills it in his life. He embodies the story of humanity and Israel perfectly. At the level of the heart and the point of what it means to be a person, living under God's rule and God's blessing, Jesus lives that out in perfect fulfillment. All that that was about, all the story, the laws and the prophecies of being a separate, distinct people of God for His glory in this world. Jesus is the one who brings that to its end. He also does it through His death and resurrection as He will be the ultimate sacrifice. He will be the spotless lamb. He will be the Passover lamb. He will be the one who is the tabernacle, the presence of God among us, the temple. He will say, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it again. And later in the book of Matthew, as he goes to die on the cross, we'll see that the veil in the temple is torn in two. Now you might think, that looks like abolishment to me. It looks like Jesus is just abolishing all the Old Testament sacrificial system, the priesthood, but actually what he's doing is fulfilling it because the purpose of the Old Testament sacrificial and ceremonial laws was so that people who are sinful and people who are broken might enter into the very presence of a holy God who loves them. And in all those laws, they weren't given to keep people away. They were given because God wanted to give them away. So all the stories, laws, prophecies of the sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple, the tabernacle are fulfilled in Him. But lastly, and our text is going to drive us here, is they're not only fulfilled in a way, and this is going to lead us to our next verse, in a way that's like just over with, but they're also fulfilled in His reign. 
This is what makes the Sermon on the Mount so applicable to, to us today as a kingdom people. Is this is not a sermon that's saying, hey, I did all this, so it's not really relevant to y'all anymore. No, what he accomplishes, he is furthering now through his people. Seeking to teach us what it means to be a people who can know God's word. Even all that Old Testament stuff. And be able to understand how he fulfilled it through his life and death and resurrection. But now how he furthers it as the ascended king of God who has given us his spirit that now enables us to discern it and to obey it. This is why he says in verse 18, notice, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, the end, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Again, until heaven and earth pass away, some debate around this, like every line in this passage this morning. Most people do not believe we can stretch this to say this is some sort of just like eschatological end times turn that Jesus is going to fulfill through his death and resurrection. But it's saying like, no, whatever, I'm going to fulfill this in my life, death and resurrection, but now I'm going to further it in my people, in this world, at the heart of really what it was supposed to be. And that next little phrase is shocking. So some of us in here might be thinking, okay, kind of generally speaking. And then he says, not an iota or a dot. Now what is he talking about here? Iota, the people in Jesus' day would have read what was known as the Septuagint. That is the Greek Old Testament. So that was kind of the common language. So, so the iota is a Greek word. And so if you have another translation, it might say the yod, which was a, a small... I mean, it's a Greek letter, iota, and the yod would have been the Hebrew letter. And then the dot, most people believe, would have been the pen strokes. So in original Hebrew, if you didn't know this, if you've seen Hebrew before, they have all these lines that are weird. It goes from left to right. And you might see these little dots or marks that kind of give you vowel sounds. Well, those weren't in the original text. And so later on, as language developed, they started putting these dots and pin strokes to, to help people better communicate and understand the language. Now, this is what's amazing. Jesus is saying, down to that level of detail is not going to pass away. It's relevant. This is an extremely high view of the Old Testament Scriptures. And Jesus is wanting to make absolutely clear for anyone who might be looking at his ministry of mercy that for lack of a word I don't like to use because it's so cliche, there's a radical mission of mercy, right? It's like revolutionary. He's saying, don't think that is at odds with the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. I did not come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. I've used this illustration before, as corny as it is, and I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it again, but I'm not going to do it all the way through it because some of you are here, right? If I unbutton my shirt here, and I get the first button wrong, the rest of it's going to be all out of whack. All out of whack. It won't matter how beautiful I do it, with what skill I do it with. It won't matter if I can memorize how many there are. If I don't get that part right, then I miss everything. 
This is what Jesus is saying, and he's going to say again and again to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the chief priests, and again and again to us today as his church. If you don't get right me, Jesus, as the center of what all of the Bible is about, then you can get everything else wrong. In John chapter 5 and verse 38, he says to the Pharisees, you just slave over searching the scriptures, but you get it all wrong because they're all about me. If you've seen the movie The Sixth Sense, I'll just try not and spoil the ending, but it's one of those movies that has this surprise ending that now is like, oh... If you would have turned that movie off before it gets... And no endorsement of this movie. Don't go watch it as families. But anyway, if you were to get to the end of this movie or think of a movie that you know that's like this, if you would have like, this is boring. This is a very boring movie. I'm going to turn it off. You would miss the whole thing. If you read the book of Leviticus and you're like, boring, I'm turning it off. Well, if you didn't get to how Jesus fulfills all that and furthers it, yeah, it's going to be boring. But if you see the end of that movie, then you're probably most likely, the first thought's not going to be boring. Some of you who are super film critics might think so. But normal folks are going to think, i got to go watch it again. i got to watch it again. And this is what the Pharisees aren't willing to do, is to humble themselves and say, maybe I don't know it all. Maybe I've not read this thing right. I have it memorized, but memorization does not mean correct interpretation if Jesus is not the center. He is the puzzle piece that comes to put everything together, and they'd missed it. And we can miss it too. As a church that believes deeply in living as people who are full of mercy... We have to realize that we do not follow Jesus as the kingdom of God by removing the authority of the scriptures. There are some who would say, I follow Jesus, not the Bible. Okay. What does Jesus say? I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. I agree, right? We're not worshiping a book. We're worshiping a Savior. But what does the Savior say about the book? There's some who would say Jesus is the Word of God, not the Scriptures. Okay, John 1 is the Word, but what does Jesus as the Word say about the Word? There would some who would say Jesus has set us free from the law in a way that makes it irrelevant. Others who would say that Jesus came to free us from the law, the Old Testament law and the prophets, because it was a repressive system of commands of a, peop of a nomadic, group, nomadic group of travelers who were merely documenting their experiences of God from their own sort of perspective. And Jesus says, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. There were some who would say that the Old Testament sacrificial system, priesthood, were merely borrowed, borrowed from pagan nations and their barbaric blood-based practices. And Jesus has come to show us a better way. Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. There's a lot of work to do in working that out. 
but I believe this is our baseline. People are not healed or freed by losing the authority of the Scriptures to the authority of the Pharisees or to the authority of the self. In our current climate, the expressive individual is where the locus of authority lives. And you could take Jesus and say, is Jesus leading me to say, yes, authority lies within me. Freedom lies within me listening just to me. Or does Jesus come to give us a freedom that comes through Him that is not an abolishment of the law and the prophets, but a fulfillment? On the other side of that, though, what needs to be really clear is the people of God should make this very confusing for the world. If we are loving people like Jesus loved people, then they should probably be asking this question about us. We don't like tension, we like certainty, we like clear categories. But however you slice this, Jesus is clear here, but it's also very clear the way that he loved people made people think, I wonder if he really takes God's word seriously. I mean, nobody worried that about the Pharisees, right? I know they take God's word seriously. (laughs) But the way of Jesus, it made people scratch their head. He loves people before they repent, before they know what repentance is, before they think they need to repent. And He does it in very close ways. He has prostitutes wash His feet and He doesn't tell them to leave. He sits at tables with tax collectors and sinners and He doesn't care if there's bad PR going to take place afterwards. He challenges people who think they know it all, but they don't know themselves. He creates this tension. And ever how difficult it may be for us to discern always what that looks like, I believe as a church we should be creating that tension in our culture, particularly our southern religious culture today. The way that we love people should make people scratch their heads and say, You're going to have to talk, we're going to have to have a conversation. Jesus is saying this tension, though, is not because he is abolishing the Scriptures, but fulfilling them. Next point. Not super concise, but hopefully stirring up some good conversations over lunch and coffee this week. So the first way, if we're going to follow Jesus on this mission of mercy, it's it's not going to be by removing the authority of Scriptures, verses 17 and 18. And then verse 19... Jesus here disrupting us again. It's not by relaxing the commands of scriptures. If that wasn't hard enough to grapple with, notice verse 19. Therefore, because of the authority of the scriptures, Jesus here specifically speaking of the Old Testament, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, so whether a scribe, Pharisee, one of his disciples, relaxes, loosens it up, lowers the standard, 
One of the least of these commandments... Now, depending on who you talk to, there's at least 611 laws in the Old Testament. And they were, they were laid out in some ways within the, the history of Israel in weightier ones and less weightier ones. Jesus will say this again. If you doubt me in Matthew later, he'll say, you Pharisees tithe dill and mint and cumin, which is kind of the less weighty laws, right? but you forget the weightier ones, loving your neighbor. Jesus says here, whoever relaxes the least of those will be called the least. Not called enlightened, not called liberated, not called intellectual, but least. But whoever learns to obey all of these, even the least, will be called the greatest. Sometimes we will use this language of the real Jesus. We've used it a lot in our church, and we don't use it in a way that's like, oh, we're the only ones who know Jesus, who Jesus really is. That would be like super arrogant. The way that we use it is when we're is not thinking about our religious subculture, we're thinking about people in the neighborhood, people in the city who don't really know who Jesus and his kingdom is and what it's all about and we just want to say hey could we could we have another take you know could we have another conversation because maybe that's not who really is and so sometimes we will instead use the language of the whole Jesus what Jesus is saying here though is that a whole Jesus brings along a whole council of God I watched a movie but there's New York Post or New York Times articles on this as well that uh, still going on that the Environmental Protection Agency investigated claims that in West Virginia this big plant had been dumping this toxic stuff in the water. Cody can tell you all the details about this. That's his job. He's make sure our water's safe or maybe he covers it up so that the, they get protected. No, I'm kidding. But that's what, this, that's what this corporation did. So the EPA had these standards that if the water had X amount of whatever this thing is, Cody could tell me PFO8 or A or something, in the water, it could cause really bad health effects. And it did. Like the farmer that lived right beside it had, I don't know how many cows die. Sam's worst nightmare. Anyway, y'all don't, Sam's a farmer, Indiana. But anyway, stare at Sam, make him feel awkward. But, uh, and, and there's big, it's, 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 kind of, it's kind of a good, it's a good story. I don't know how much of it's true from what I've heard of. But basically, people in that city, their teeth were turning black, but they didn't really know why. There was increased amount of people getting cancer at a higher rate. And so they took them to court. And they had the support of the community. You know why they had the support of the community? Because if that plant and that company was taken down, they were going to lose all kinds of jobs. Like their immediate comfort of life, their immediate sense of joy, their sense of place, we might even say their sense of identity, would have been disrupted by the truth. So what it seems like they were able to do was when they came to the law to the court 
and they presented their case and said, clearly here the science shows that there's this much in the water, and you guys said if there's only this much, it would be deadly. Before they had the chance to present that, the Environmental Protection Agency raised the standard. And it just so happened to be it was above the amount, of course, that was in the water. Now, I'm no scientist or lawyer. Y'all can go study if that's true. Here's why this is relevant to what we're talking about today. Is they did that with the support of the community. They were willing to die and even in the present time to largely have a lower quality of life because they didn't know it's what they were used to. It's what made them feel safe. It's what made them feel secure. And the same thing can be true in our lives and in our discipleship. Step one, we've got to discern how all these Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in Christ and come to us now. But step two is if we accept that premise and we follow that, what do we do when we get to what those mean? And they make our lives uncomfortable. We're used to it when they affect our sense of place even, identity, comfort, self. But Jesus says we're not to relax these. This is nothing new within the history of the church. Early on, a, a church father named Augustine, if you're fancy pants, or Augustine, if you're a regular person maybe, this was a big thing he faced with guys versus like Marcion and Faustus. If, I know some of you are interested in these things. Like From the very start of the church, there was always a group of people who were saying, we just need to like take our Bibles and cut out a big chunk of it. It's not relevant. So you're not alone. And while it might be easy for us to point at certain cults or factions within the history of the church, or even to higher education and to critical approaches to the text, or to those who might claim to be red-letter Christians, that is, we only follow what Jesus said, and again, but what about what he just said about the Law and the Prophets, is I guarantee you every one of us in here have super high standards in certain areas of our life, and we're super chill about other ones. And probably we're super chill about the ones that we just would really disrupt our sense of pride, our sense of performance. So we relax them. Yeah, sure, it's wrong to gossip, to not love my neighbor. But, you know, it's not a big deal. And then you got your other thing over here that's like you're, you would die for it. Right. Jesus is going to help us with this just so you know in the weeks to come verses 21 through 48 he's like going to go through some specific Old Testament laws and say here's what I'm talking about we can't do all that this morning of course but we're coming to that but one that he's going to do is he's going to say there may be some of you in here who are like I hate the death penalty but you're holding a grudge against somebody else in your life you're harboring anger in your heart against them. And Jesus is going to say, you're a hypocrite. 
There may be some of you in here who are like, I'm, I'm all about the authority of all the Bible. I'm all about the sovereignty of God. And your life is so full of anxiety that you are just driving everybody around you crazy. You won't even look into the story of hurt and pain in your life and tell the truth about it because you're so afraid. And Jesus is going to say, what are you doing? You're relaxing it. You're relaxing the law. If we had time this morning, I was going to show a clip from a TV show called The West Wing. Some of you may have heard of it. If you like political stuff, you might like it. You're not going to agree with everything. There's one particular scene in this show that is kind of one of these powerful gotcha moments. And Jeb Bartlett, who's the, the president, and you, you, a lot of you aren't going to agree with this politics, but it's kind of like an ideal, sort of like, this guy's a good guy. But anyway, he sees a reporter that's in the room with him who he knows disagrees with homosexuality. And you can tell she's a pompous jerk just by looking at her. But anyway, so he keeps seeing her out the corner of his eye, and he just can't stand it. So he's like, hey, so you, you're this radio host, and he kind of makes some jabs at her. And it's so much better to watch it and let me real tell it. But anyway, uh, and he says, so I know on your radio show you said homosexuality is a sin or abomination or something. And she's like, well, I don't say that, sir. The Bible says that. And then he says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. You know, my daughter's graduating from Georgetown and Exodus 21.7 gives prescriptions for selling your daughter into slavery. So I just wonder what, what would be a good price for her. And then he says, and while we're at it, a lot of people love football, but, you know, uh, the Washington Redskins, don't let that distract you, they, they touch a pigskin every Sunday. And the, doesn't the Old Testament law say that you're not allowed to touch a pig? And then he's like, oh, and my chief of staff, uh, he, he loves to work on Sundays. And, and he's quoting these Old Testament law verses. Doesn't Leviticus say that we should stone him? So when do you think we should do that? And then, and then he, he just he keeps, he keeps going. And yeah, and I've got a friend who's a farmer who plants his two different crops side by side. And doesn't the Old Testament law say you can't do that or you're to be expelled from the people and all these things? And it's like, gotcha! And I don't want to be a jerk like that lady because I... Yeah, she deserved it. You could tell I wanted to smack her too, even though she wasn't real. <laughs> but in the most nice way that I can say it, that is like a really sophomoric approach to understand. Like all that the show writers, Aaron Sorkin or whoever, need to do is Google what's a good <laughs> description of the Old Testament. Like, but yet we have to be honest, many people in the church don't know how to read those texts and not be embarrassed of them. This is why I said we don't have time this morning. But what I say when I mean sophomoric is not, not to be a pejorative term, but it's like you just learn enough about the Bible to pick holes in it, and you don't really go and study a history or a tradition of interpretation where this has been dealt with again, again, and again. It's the way that we understand what all those things are about is we've got to read the story as it's fulfilled in Christ. There are certain laws in the Old Testament that, yes, are now obsolete. Not abolished, but obsolete because of the coming of Jesus. Like, we don't offer sacrifices anymore. 
Does that mean that those sacrifices then had no meaning? Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 is going to say to the Pharisees, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, it's what comes out. And if you read in Mark chapter 7, the parallel text, Mark's going to put in parentheses, thus he declared all foods clean. We don't worry about what we're eating today, whether it's pork or shellfish or any number of matters of that. It's not because, oh, that was a bad law or it doesn't mean anything. It's because that was a part of how Israel was setting themselves apart from the nations at that point in redemptive history. But now that Jesus has come as the one who is the true and faithful set-apart Son of God, now through our faith in Him, we don't show it that way anymore. It doesn't mean it's irrelevant. Jesus is going to say to His disciples, He's going to pray for us that we would be in the world, but not of the world. We don't do that anymore in those ways. But we still do that. Jesus knew the heart of the law. And we're going to see the rest of this Sermon on the Mount just bears out this way of reading the Scriptures. That love of God and neighbor was at the height of it all. And that many laws given in the Old Covenant were given that to us on face value looked crazy. But they were given at a different time in our different history when there was a level of restraint that was needed for a people who did not yet have the Spirit of God. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is going to speak to the disciples about divorce and he's going to seek to clarify some things and the Pharisees are going to say, didn't Moses say that we could have this certificate to kind of throw around how we want? And Jesus is going to say, yes, but that was due to the hardness of your hearts. He's not going to say that was a bad thing. He's going to say, no, it was pointing to a deeper thing. If we go back and read verses like Exodus 21.7 about these regulations surrounding slavery and debt in a society and culture like that, actually they're given to prohibit the exploitation of women in that culture. Again, we can have coffee and talk about all the details of that. But women were being particularly exploited and abused in some great ways. And the law of God says there's going to be some restrictions around this. It's not just, it's isn't going to be like this. And then restrictions for freedom, years of jubilee. Jesus will speak to this in these chapters. We'll talk about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That wasn't created to have a vengeful culture, it was created so that the punishment would fit the crime. And even there, Jesus will raise the standards. Jesus also discerned the heart of the kingdom. Israel was distinct from the new covenant community of God because they were not merely a spiritual people, but a national people. Therefore, they had civil and ceremonial regulations that Jesus would fulfill, but they would come to us in ways now that are displayed not in the same exact obedience like the food laws, the Sabbath, and circumcision. And we don't have all day to talk about these, but we practice circumcision in our culture in a lot of situations largely due to health reasons or perceived health reasons. That's not why they did it. 
There was a promise given to Abraham that through your seed, the blessing of the world was going to come. And so this cut was made on the male genitalia that would make that very hard to forget. But now that seed has come in Christ. You didn't know you could talk about circumcision this morning. So you can keep, we can keep doing that if we want to, but we don't have to. But Jesus didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. And we could do this all day long with all of the commandments of God. We don't have time, but I think it's super fun to do that. So part of what it means to be the people of God now as followers of Jesus is we've got to learn to read our scriptures in light of what Jesus has did. And now we've got to discern through the Spirit what does it look like for us to carry over those eternal principles that lie behind all of those temporal laws that were fulfilled in Christ. And I really believe this is good news for the world. It's good news for the world. So-called conservatives take certain texts, right, and use the Old Covenant or Old Testament, and the so-called liberals, I don't like these sort of, they'll say, you pick and choose. And then on the other side, the so-called liberals will use all the text about refugees and foreigners and all that, and justice, and then the conservatives will say, you pick and choose, right? But we've got some point of common ground here, right? We're all saying that in this Old Testament, we're not just merely seeing this sort of barbaric set of things that Jesus comes to do away with. But He's coming to fulfill that, to show what it looks like for us to be a whole people. That's what it means to be holy, to be whole, to love justice, to do mercy. God wants that president's daughter to be protected from exploitation in the world still. God wants that president's chief of staff not to be stoned for working on the Sabbath, but to know that he can rest. He doesn't have to prove himself through performance. God wants Bartlett's football team to not just play football, but to even as they touch that pigskin, to understand they've been called to be a part of a greater team, a greater kingdom. That will win in the end. And God wants Bartlett's audience who struggle with all the moral issues to know that God comes to give them not a hammer to break them, but a way of hope that will help them even if it touches the very deepest places of who we think about who we are. We've got to do the last point quickly. It's maybe the most important. But now what you could say is, well, I think you just gave a bigger hammer to hurt people with. So Jesus now has just handed the kingdom the same hammer that the Pharisees hold. And that's what he's done. So we've got to have verse 20. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Classic Jesus. He said, you've got to be more righteous than them. People would be out there scratching their heads like, what? They wouldn't have heard that as like good news. Like these are the super holy people. These are the people that tied their spice rack. These are the people who keep all the laws, who wash all their hands right. And they have extra laws upon laws. And Jesus says, you've got to be more righteous than them. And he says, you've got to be more righteous than them, even to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. So notice he's saying, whatever they're doing, they're not in the kingdom of heaven. You've got to outdo them. So what is he saying? 
He's bringing them this reality that obedience to the law of God is not first of all about the letter, it's about the heart. Mere intellect is not enough. Memorizing the Bible, you miss it if you don't get this. Mere show. I remember one time we had a couple who became a part of our church and at another church I think they said we were kind of like varsity Christians. We served in all the ways, we did all the things, gave the money and it wasn't because of our church was anything particularly special, it was just because we had come to believe what Jesus says here. And after being in the church for a while and talking about things like idols and wounds and the lies and your story, they were like, we went to having a pretty good marriage to now thinking maybe we're not even Christians. This wasn't a hopeless conversation. It was actually a sign that I believe that the Spirit of God was more alive and at work in their hearts than it ever had been. But they were saying we're no longer being able to hide behind what we do. We're no longer even in our marriage and in our relationships being able to create a sense of intimacy through the intensity of our actions. Some of us may not know that, that intensity is not the same as intimacy, like doing stuff together. Yeah, it makes you feel close. It doesn't mean you are close. What Jesus is doing here and what he's going to do in the rest of this sermon is he's raising this standard. And it calls all of us to say what we've already sang this morning. Well, dang. Nothing in my hands I bring. I mean, I could work on some communication tips, but honestly, I'd just like to punch that person in the throat half the time. Nobody else knows that. But you do, God. I can serve in the church, but do, do I love God? Is it worship? I don't murder, but do I harbor anger in my heart? I've not committed adultery, but is my life full of lust? I don't hate people, but do I love my enemy? And this is why we need Jesus. We're about to come to the Lord's table in just a second. And what we're seeing here is that none of us can fulfill this law unless Jesus first fulfills it for us. We can't. He must fulfill all righteousness is what he said to John the Baptist as he comes to his baptism. And here is he must fulfill all the law of the prophets in our place. He's not lowering that standard, he's raising it to the level of the heart, to the level of our motivations and our desires. But the good news is, is that He has. He has perfectly obeyed God's law and fulfilled God's story, been God's wisdom, embodied God's promises for us. This is why He goes to the cross, not merely as the one who fulfills that story in His life, but in His death. All that that sacrificial system was pointing towards... All that mediation of priest 
All those regulations in tabernacle and temple, as Jesus goes to the cross, He bears all that in our place once and for all so that now we and all of our failures and faults and doubts and discouragements can boldly come before His throne. We can know we are not condemned, cursed, and left unclean. But the new covenant that He fulfills also tells us that He gives us His Spirit so that we are now enabled to obey His commands. The fancy term for this in the history of the church is antinomianism. It means against the law. And sometimes we can have a view of grace that can be misunderstood that says Jesus fulfilled all the law so now I'm just free to not care. But what Jesus is saying, you have been set free to care more, to love more from the heart. From the heart. And this is what he's going to lay out in the rest of these scriptures. This is why we gather every week. This is why we come together as missional communities, as fight clubs, is so that we might follow Jesus for the good of the world. Not with a hammer to whack people over the head with so that it makes us feel better than them, but with a healing, constructing, building story and truth of the one who has come to be all that we could never be so that we could be all that we were created to be. But we must learn to love, to live the scriptures under the reign of Jesus. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to begin this conversation around your word under the reign and fulfillment of Jesus, the one who is the word. And we pray now as we come to the table that you would help us to taste and see that he is good. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.